A wise teacher once told me that what sets humans apart from the rest of nature is the ability and the innate need to tell stories. Ghost stories around a campfire that have us looking over our shoulders for the whole night, or a book so good that you just keep going to the end even though you're sad to say goodbye, or a movie so compelling that you go to the midnight release and suffer through the consequences of being exhausted the next day, or watching your entire weekend slip away through your fingers because you somehow ended up watching three seasons of your favorite TV show on Netflix. We love stories. They tell us about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. They show us that, should the situation ever come about, we too could rise to the challenge and act against our own instinct of self-preservation to do what no one else seems to be willing to do. Ultimately, we just love to go on journeys that don't even require us to go out the front door. I'm Christopher Jones. Welcome to Just a Theory. At the end of the last episode, I left you with a bit of a cliffhanger. It was the story of a journey, of growth, an uphill battle that we didn't get to finish. So here's the conclusion you've all been waiting for. That melody started so simply. When we left it at the end of the last episode, it seemed like it had such an obvious conclusion. But things don't always turn out the way we expect, do they? In fact, how often do things turn out exactly the way we expect they're going to? I can say for myself that every time a part of my life seems to want to come to a close, there's some sort of twist. There's always something unexpected, maybe exciting, maybe scary, sometimes both. Maybe I like stories a little too much, but it always seems to me that this twist leads me right into the new chapter and helps tie it into the previous one. When we thought that melody was going to end, it made a jump to something unexpected. There was this final note that we were expecting to hear, but it didn't happen in the way we were expecting it to. As it went on after the cliffhanger from the last episode, 
Each note made us want to hear the end more and more. Each note that delayed the end was one more thing that stood in the way of what we intrinsically wanted and needed to hear. The melody began in a way that we thought was predictable. It started on middle C, went up a scale, all in steps. It covered quite a long distance, almost two octaves, and then stopped at the note right below the obvious conclusion. I intentionally led you to believe that the end would be a one-note, simple, and predictable conclusion. Instead, what happened is the melody kept going and skipped right over the note we all wanted to hear. From there, it went on a series of twists and turns and introduced some new notes that we hadn't heard before. And then finally, after a long and tiring ride, arrived at the last note. Who saw that coming? There's no shame in wrongly predicting what was going to happen. In fact, that's one of the reasons that we love stories so much. Experiencing a tale unfold isn't a one-way street where there's a narrator that just guides us through a series of events. When we listen to a story, or watch a movie, read a book, or binge-watch three years of TV in a matter of a few days, there's a constant back and forth between us and the source of the story. Of course, we can't really control what's going to happen, but we like to think that we can see what's going to happen next, and that we actually do have some amount of say in what's going to happen. There's a constant exchange between our own expectations and the reality of what we're experiencing. It's not much different than in life, except that in entertainment, the stakes are much lower. The fun in stories is that there's conflict. There's struggle and fear and doubt that actually doesn't bear any risk to us. Conflict is the driving force in anything that's interesting. Imagine a TV show where nothing happens. Sure, there was Seinfeld, a show that described itself as a show about nothing. But was it really about nothing? Was it really just about a stand-up comedian living in New York City, going to a few gigs per week, and just living his life? No, there was so much more to it. Even in nothing, there was a sense of drama in the everyday occurrences like running out of toilet paper in a public restroom, or a crazy parent inventing an alternative to Christmas, or your fiancé getting accidentally poisoned from licking too many envelopes for your wedding invitations. This is most definitely not nothing. The basis of entertainment is struggle that we're invested in. When I played that melody at the end of the last episode, on some level, you probably wanted to hear it end. You had heard what you thought was going to be the entire idea, and there was an expectation that it would end by moving up one more step to one more note to end on that one pitch that you really wanted to hear. 
Did any of you sing the note after you realized that it wasn't going to end? Or maybe at least you heard it in your head? Those were just musical fan theories, anticipating the conclusion to something that you had, on some level, become invested in. We crave resolution. We want to know if Darth Vader will turn back to the light at the end of Episode 6. We want to know if Mr. Frodo will be able to resist the power of the One Ring and destroy it in the chasm of Mount Doom. Remember waiting for the last half-season of Breaking Bad? In case someone hasn't seen it, I won't spoil it, but that was a seriously tense waiting period. There's a really big concept at play here. The 1960s in the United States were a time of social and political turmoil. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy was a violent end to a cultural bubble in which people had been prospering since the end of the Second World War. This generation-defining event set the stage for a decade of cultural and countercultural movements amidst the threat of nuclear annihilation, an unpopular and unwinnable war, and the most widespread and profound expansion of civil rights in a century. In the early 60s, there was one man who had made a name for himself as being someone with a guitar who sang poignant songs that touched on the heart of so many cultural and political issues in a way that resonated with an atmosphere of uncertainty. On Sunday, July 25, 1965, Bob Dylan was scheduled to play at the Newport Folk Festival. He had performed at the festival for the past few years as a singer and songwriter, to somewhat mixed reviews, yes, but still as only one man with a guitar, a voice, and something to say. What happened next shook a small corner of the world. At this conventionally folk festival, a genre that is often dominated by simple, and traditional instrumentations to underscore an emphasis on the craft of songwriting, an expectation by the crowd was abruptly revoked when Dylan performed with an electric band. In 20th century American popular music, you could say that this was the shot heard round the world. When Dylan went electric, is still, to this day, often quoted as a pivotal point in his career and for the genre of folk music. So let me ask you this. Why does this matter? Why does this particular decision, over 50 years ago, still matter to all of us today? The simple answer is that this event demonstrates a concept on which the existence of music is entirely dependent. Music is a contract. Well, what exactly is a contract? 
Isn't it a document that you sign after saying that you read it? Like the terms and conditions that nobody has ever actually read, or that deal with the record label that means you owe them a life's worth of work, or the deals that the musicians of legend sign with the devil for skills and success? In a sense, yes, but a contract can be much broader than any of that. A contract is any kind of agreement between people. Think about the last song you listened to. When you listened to it, did you have some sort of expectation about it? Maybe a friend sent you a link and said, Hey, check this out, it's awesome. Didn't you have some sort of expectation that your friend wouldn't steer you wrong? Or the last time you went out to hear live music? Wasn't there an expectation that it wouldn't be too loud for the venue? I'm assuming you didn't go hear a Norwegian black metal band at a quiet coffee shop at 8 o'clock in the morning, or you didn't end up hearing a symphony orchestra play Brahms when you went to Ozfest. There are so many implied agreements when it comes to music. Music is a social contract. It's a set of loosely defined conventions of what is acceptable and what isn't. When Bob Dylan showed up with an electric band at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965, it was a pretty serious breach of an agreement that the music there should be acoustic. On May 19, 1913, when Stravinsky's Rite of Spring premiered in Paris, the crowd broke down into riots because the subject matter of the choreography was so disconcerting to their sensibilities as it portrayed a series of rituals of a pagan origin. Music is an agreement between three different groups. If you were to write it out, it kind of looks like a triangle. There's an agreement between the composers who write the music and the performers who play it, between the audiences who listen and the performers, and also between the composer and the audience. The audiences in this explanation are kind of consumers. They're spending their time and resources on entertainment, and they do it willingly with a few expectations that they need to have met. What these expectations are depends on the time, the people, the culture, the area, and so many different factors. But ultimately, if the audience's expectations aren't met, historically speaking, there are consequences. This social contract is a balancing act. When someone writes music, they do that for any number of reasons. It may be a commission from a particular performer. It may be to commemorate an event. Or maybe it's for a movie or a video game. Or maybe they just write it for the sake of writing it. Art for the sake of creation is great, don't get me wrong. But isn't the great payoff for someone who creates the moment when their creation has fulfilled their own vision and it gets to leave home and lead a life of its own? For this to happen in the case of a composer, it has to meet some of the expectations of performers and audiences. 
there has to be something about it that's liked. The great balancing act here is operating within what's considered normal and yet still pushing and doing new things. If someone were to invent a time machine, imagine taking a theremin and a power source back in time to the Middle Ages. That would probably raise some eyebrows and you'd probably be burned at the stake. This is what makes an effective story. It all has to do with our expectations of what's going to happen, and the best of stories make us feel like we have a real stake in the outcome. I recently finished watching The Office for the third, maybe fourth time. Throughout the first two seasons, there's one thing that keeps us coming back. There's one question that every episode sets up and never really answers until the third season. When is this Jim and Pam thing going to actually happen? The writers set up two likable characters. Each one has a sort of deficit that the other complements, and makes it clear to the audience that something is going to happen. We have an expectation that they're going to get together and live happily ever after and sell paper together or something. We, as the audience, have this expectation and that's what keeps us watching. We're watching in suspense week after week, or now with Netflix, half hour after half hour, and waiting for this relationship to come to fruition. Maybe we see a little bit of ourselves in their characters. Maybe we see the struggle and redirect the frustration of our own battles into these fictional characters. We do this because there is a social contract between the writers of The Office and the audience. We don't know how this tension will be resolved, but on some level, we know that it has to. It's just a matter of time. And when it does happen, well... That's the moment we wait for. Remember the melody from the beginning of this episode? I set up an expectation and I drew out the suspense. I threw in some plot twists, some notes you probably weren't expecting, some sudden and surprising turns, and maybe at some point you thought that I wasn't going to go where you expected. If you did think that, that's part of what made the end of the melody more gratifying than if I had just ended it like a scale. A scale isn't interesting. It's predictable and kind of dry. One of the things that draws us to music is the way that it plays with our minds and emotions, giving us some things in the way that we expect them, or pushing the boundaries and giving us other things in completely unexpected ways that we didn't even know we wanted to begin with, but now can't imagine being without. In that way, music is like the perfect gift. On the next episode of Just a Theory we'll talk about some of the specific ways that music leads us through a narrative and manipulates our expectations in different ways. 
If you want to hear more, subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and check out the extra stuff at justatheorypodcast.com. If you have any thoughts on this or any episode, or have an idea you'd like to hear me explore, or a question about music you'd like me to answer, you can send me an email at contact at justatheorypodcast.com or use the form on the website. Thanks for listening. I'm Christopher Jones, and this is Just a Theory. Just a Theory.